When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to your podcast, New Books in Economic and Business History. I'm your host, Javier Mejia from Stanford University. And today I have the great pleasure to be with Clara Matei. She's an assistant professor in the economics department of the New School for Social Research. And she's the author of a book that has received quite a lot of attention recently. It's called The Capital Order, How Economists Invented Austerity and Paved the Way to Fascism. I'm going to be talking with Clara today about her book and her career. Hi, Clara. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. And before getting into the book, I would like to hear more about you. I would like to hear about how you ended up being the scholar that you are today, interested in the topics that you work on. Uh, So please tell me a bit about that. Where are you from? How did you end up being... Uh, this type of social scientist that you are. Thanks so much. Um, yes, I uh, I have quite a bit peculiar, um, let's say, uh, academic trajectory in the sense that I started as a as a philosophy student. So I did a BA and an MA in philosophy and history. Uh, in Italy, philosophy is quite continental, so it's interlinked with a lot of history courses. Um, and then I took a class in the history of economic thought with a wonderful professor who now passed away, Giorgio Lunghini, and he got me very interested in reading the classics. So Smith, Ricardo, Marx, Rafa. Uh, and he thought I was a good student, so he pushed me to actually getting to a PhD in economics. And I had a completely different understanding of what economics could be. So I was quite shocked when I started the hardcore mathematics and the quantitative classes. Uh, so it was very difficult. I spent four years. We did a lot of exams, a lot of um, a lot of um, a lot of um, you know um, mainstream methods. And after I passed all my classes, I wanted to really reaffirm the fact that even someone with a background in philosophy could make it um, in a PhD in economics. Um, I was 
asked doubtful on how I could make sense of my research project. And I actually encountered a, um, an article uh, on fascist economic policies quite randomly. And I was living in the 2011-2012 post uh, sovereign debt crisis uh, austerity moment with Mario Monti in government. And there I realized the parallelism. So I got curious and I started exploring and I finally found out there is a whole world of people who try to go beyond the strict uh, disciplinary uh, boundaries. And I constructed for myself kind of a framework in historical political economy. Now, um, this has a lot to do also with the fact that I got hired at the new school uh, right after my PhD. And that really helped me so much put together the historical um, the historical archival work that I had done during my PhD thesis with a conceptual framework uh, that is embedded in the classical political economy tradition. Uh, and so in this sense, this book is in fact history, theory, and in general trying to understand the logic of capitalism through a historical perspective. Let me ask you a bit more about that, about the, again, I think you're a um, special type of economist, right? And, and your background as a philosopher is probably like at the core of that difference. And and now I would like to know how, how do you feel like navigating like the social dimension of your profession? And I guess what I'm thinking is that I'm not sure like how much space is for on a daily basis, at least for philosophy and reflection of ideas in our community. And probably this is particularly the case in the American economics community, right? So how do you feel about that? Have you ever felt like orphan in terms of uh, um, or like misplaced feeling that you're not in the right place? Like, I guess that the new school is a very um, special um, institution as well, like, but... I would like to hear a bit like about your personal experience. And oh, definitely. It was very tough for me. I was crying almost every day. My, my, my family still makes fun of me remembering <laughs> the time during my PhD years in which, in fact, even an institution like the one I was in in Italy, Santana University, uh, heterodox in name, had a hard time accepting um, a framework that was constructed out of historical and analysis that was interested in the social relations that constitute our economy. So um, I felt extremely misplaced until I actually um, got the opportunity to learn about the existence of the new school and luckily enough got hired there, in which in fact it is one of the only places, uh, unfortunately for us, uh, unfortunately for general, for the profession and luckily for me, who is, uh, is there at the moment, in which um, the idea is that history is constitutive of economic theory, that you can't divide, you can't do abstract theory without a historical understanding. And so in this sense, uh, they appreciate uh, scholars who really um, try to gain insight from historical processes. And this is quite unique. And, you know... Um, the new school, unfortunately, is small, has not much funding. Uh, we are going through a big labor strike at the moment because there's a structural underfunding of professors. 
So, you know, it's, it's, one has to defend this tradition also very concretely in the type of resources we have. Um, but certainly, you know, uh, I gave up participating in the big uh, economic uh, conferences of, you know, the mainstream economic conferences because I, I, I'm, I, I have interests that are quite different in the sense that I feel that sometimes our profession can become extremely intellectually dry um, not only because it presumes to be apolitical, and this is one of the themes of the book, is to try to really um, discover through the direct participation of economists in the class struggle after the First World War, is really to uncover kind of the political nature of the supposedly apolitical discipline of economics. So the origins of the neoclassical framework and the marginalism after the after the turn of the of the century, so early 19, 19th, uh, 20th century, sorry, as really a moment in which um, the uh, class nature of our economics discipline today is quite visible, and 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 so it's more interesting to explore it because it reveals features that are more normalized today. Are you optimistic about the future of? Um, I, I don't know how to call this, but I guess the history of ideas or just an approach that pays more attention to uh, intellectual history in, in, in the discipline. And I'm asking you this because, I mean, although uh, you describe like, your position as a minoritarian one, I mean, you've also been uh, benefited by the huge success that like your book has had, right? So um, uh, how do you... Think about that. Like, it, it, it's is that a sign of hope or? Um... So, um, two th- things here. One is that the history of economic thought, uh, the history of economics as a subdiscipline, is also uh, in many ways, I think, methodologically quite um, conservative. Uh, so there are history of economics uh, societies, um, but they tend to uh, detach the theory of the authors from the actual um, social context in which these economists operated. And so my work was criticized heavily also from the, you know, the, the societies in which I did participate in, the conference I did go to with were the concept of the history of economic thought, because um, they saw what I was doing as not really what the historian of economic thought should do, which is all about kind of an internal reconstruction of ideas, very much in a Lakatosian framework. So I must say that I also felt quite um, not always understood also amongst the history of economic thought society community. This said, um, I think we are in a historical moment in which um, there's a lot of thirst for new narratives Um, There's a lot of obvious um, signs of why our current socioeconomic system is failing us. Uh, I don't need to, uh, so obvious, uh, just the climate crisis, the socioeconomic inequality crisis, and so forth. So that new narratives are clearly uh, welcome. Um, I think it's interesting to note that my book is published with the University of Chicago Press, which um, is a the press that published Hayek and Friedman. And if you go on their web, on their page, the related titles to my work are in fact 
Hayek and Friedman, which is at once, you know, um, I'm very honored by the fact of even being, you know, put together with such famous economists. But at the same time, it also shows clearly the two texts are could not be more different in terms of the message. Um, my work tries to deconstruct the consensus towards our economic system, while, of course, Hayek and Friedman were the major um, ideologues in support of, of our society um, in terms of market capitalism. So I think this that there is hope in the sense that it seems to me that um, there is interesting interest uh, to publish new things, both from prestigious traditional university presses and it has received a lot of attention uh, because clearly I think um, people realize how political so the role of a historian is I think that um, this is something I take on very seriously is to um, really um, live the the political weight of the profession, not just of the economist, but also of the historian, how historians reconstruct the past has enormous impact and influence on how we can imagine the future, right? So the, how, you, how you see the past, the, the trajectory you, you, you tell, the story you tell about the history of capitalism is uh, very important to justify the present and so um, avoid thinking of alternatives for the future. So the idea of the book is exactly to look at the workings of capitalism in more realistic terms rather than idealized terms, look at the fact that austerity, the thesis of the book is that austerity is in the DNA of capitalism and that we should talk more about austerity capitalism rather than neoliberalism, because neoliberalism gives a sense of the exception to a rule. Uh, and the idea is quite the opposite here. The idea is that the rule is austerity. And this is something I think people are interested in hearing because they also want to think about alternatives that are not necessarily just going back to a welfare uh, capitalism uh, moment. Let's let's get into the... I guess the details of your argument and, and for doing that, I would like to hear how you understand austerity, right? And and what I'm thinking is like it's austerity versus what? Like what's like the other alternative? So what I'm thinking is that I guess that in concrete terms, I can think about a policy that follows austerity, right? That one's one that has to, that tries, for instance, to have like a fiscal surplus, so is it non-austerity, something where you have like zero fiscal surplus or you need to have like a fiscal deficit? How big does it need to be? Like, how do you, I know you do it and you have a rather complex idea of what austerity is, but I would like to hear how do you react to like like those thoughts? Yes. So the, um, the intention of the capital order was to repoliticize the austerity debates um, which goes on both in the public domain, but also among scholars. So how to repoliticize austerity is exactly one way is to stop thinking about austerity just as a toolbox to manage the economy, and especially to stop thinking in the aggregate. So I think um, I wanted to get out of the dichotomy uh, of pro-austerity economist and Keynesian criticisms to austerity that viewed austerity, the opposite of austerity of just fiscal stimulus in general, right? So what you described to me is 
doesn't really get to the crux of what austerity is and thus doesn't get to the crux of what a non-austerity framework would look like because we shouldn't think in the aggregate. This is why I um, talk about austerity policies as being fundamentally a trinity uh, of policies, fiscal, monetary, and industrial. And these policies really have the fundamental function of shifting resources from the majority of us, so the working people, to the restricted minority of the saving investing elite, right? So in this sense, uh, if you look at the budget of Italy, for example, given that I'm here right now, we now had a new budget um, law passed and total expenditures didn't go down. But the point is, where is the state spending and how is the state making its uh, revenue. So the state is now increasing its military expenditure, okay, by quite a lot, actually, by 300 million just in this year. But at the same time, it's cutting, sorry, 800 million just this year. But at the same time, it's cutting on, for example, healthcare, 300 million a year, and on public schools, and on many other benefits. For example, these, this, um, we had an income, an income for the poor, which has been eliminated. So here we see that if you look at the total amount of expenditure of the state, we don't really see what's going on. What we need to do is actually look at, disaggregate, look at in terms of analysis of classes, where is the money spent? And clearly uh, what we see is that austerity is always about taking away benefits and social resources from the majority. And this is, again, not a mistake. The thesis of the book is that it is exactly austerity that serves the purpose of enhancing capital accumulation, of stabilizing our capitalist economy and the very possibility of economic growth because it forces people to accept our capitalist economy as the only one possible. How? Very concretely, uh, by, for example, privatizing all what were before social benefits that you could just be entitled to as a citizen, for example, school and healthcare. In the moment in which this becomes private and you need to purchase these rights, then you depend more and more on the market. And we know that if you depend on the market and if the labor market is unfavorable, and this is what austerity does, we see it right now today, is the increasing interest rates have exactly the purpose of increasing the pool of, pool of the unemployed. Um, uh, in, a, in a situation in which we depend on the market for survival and unemployment is high, this creates competition amongst us for survival and thus fundamentally the necessity to accept the social order and be disciplined by these impersonal laws of the market. So this is, uh, I think, I hope I answered in the sense that for me, the here the issue is that austerity uh, needs to be understood as a one-sided class warfare against the people in order to support capitalism as the only game in town uh, that people just need to accept out of no other possibility. And thus, the idea that 
economic policy is synonymous with austerity because there's no other possibility around. So you argue, you want to point out in the book that um, austerity, as you define it, um, emerges or consolidates after World War One, right? Um, why don't you tell us a bit about that process and more specifically, how were things before then, right? If that's the origin of it, what's the before and the after of, of, of the austerity story here? Thank you. Uh, the thesis of the capital order is that in order to understand the logic of austerity today, one needs to look at austerity's origins. Why look at the austerity's origins? Well, because austerity, I argue, emerges in a moment in which capitalism was confronting its greatest existential crisis, in which the capital order, that's the title of the book, the capital order, uh, the capital order was being questioned and was shaking. Now, just to be clear, why the capital order? I kind of already said it, but I would like to um, be more explicit. The capital order refers uh, to capital, which usually we understand as a commodity, as wealth, uh, as something separate from us. Um, this capital as a commodity, as wealth, as what in fact uh, our system is meant to produce, our system is meant to invest capital in order to gain more capital, and this is in fact the definition of economic growth, um, in order for our system to uh, grow uh, economically, we require capital as the social relation that organizes our society by which the majority of us willingly, in quotes, in the sense that there's no real other option, uh, sells its labor power in return for a wage. So the pillar of our economic system, the pillar of capital growth uh, and of economic growth is wage relations, our wage relations, in the sense that it's the fact that the majority of us survives because it is able to get some cash in, it, in the wallet thanks to working for a wage, right? And it is this working for a wage for uh, private employers, usually, and that's why the other big pillar of, of the capital order is private property of the means of production, in the sense that this economic growth happens because private investors invest. Okay, so what happens? Um, with the Great War, uh, First World War, 1914-1918, this capital order really is put into question for the first time. And why does this happen? Well, it happens, and I, this is I explained through extensive historical and archival work, it happens because the state, for the first time, um, breaches its what was considered the natural limit of its action so far because it actually needs to massively intervene in the market in order to assure victory, uh, uh, in order to assure enough war production to win the war. So war collectivism, the fact that the state becomes the main employer and the main producer, um, has the effect of repoliticizing these pillars of capital accumulation, namely wage relations and private property of the means of production. Um, what do I mean by repoliticizing? Very simply put, that citizens in, and I focus on Western Europe, I focus on Italy and Britain af during and after the war. 
namely that citizens, not just in Eastern Europe, but also in Western Europe, in the cradle of liberal democracy, Britain, the most advanced capitalist country in that moment, start thinking that a different society may be possible uh, with the war reconstruction, right? So the sense, and this is, again, I look, I give voice to um, the people living in that moment. And that's a big effort of the first part of the book is to reconstruct this existential crisis of capitalism by using primary sources. So really trying to get back to the spirit of the time in which, of course, now with the benefit of hindsight, we know that capitalism remain solid, but people living in 1919 in Britain and Italy, and of course in other places of the world as well, really were thinking that the system was not going to survive more than a couple of years. And of course, we had the Russian Revolution happening not very far away, to keep in mind that it was a revolutionary context. So in this revolutionary momentum, and the first part of the book described the varieties of practical alternatives that were maturing and being put into motion from a more reformist understanding of putting social necessities before economic necessities. So kind of a Keynesianism before Keynes, much more radical in its ambition to emancipate the majority through, for example, communal homes, spaces for maternity women to be emancipated from their um, their um, reproduction uh, work and um, adult education and so forth, all the way to much more ambitious understanding of economic democracy based on self-governance of industry and of um, also of agricultural production. So I go through a whole variety of possibilities, guild socialism, um, the workers' council movement that was very strong in Italy in 1920, the occupation of the factories that lasted a whole month in which the whole peninsula workers were, in fact, through these council, organizing production democratically. Um, this is the idea. The, the idea is that it is in this moment of existential crisis of the capital order that the elite has to use its most powerful tools um, to react in order to maintain, protect the capital order from, from imminent defeat. And it is the second part of the book that thus reconstructs austerity as this global technocratic project in which economic experts were were uh, called upon by governments of all around the world. I focus again just on two countries, but it was really uh, quite a global through these new international financial conference. The first international financial conference is in Brussels, 1920 and, and Genoa, 1922, in which um, the austerity code is refined um, that, and, and is wielded in the motto that they use themselves at the time. Again, I use the sources to really have these people speak directly. Consume less, produce more. Thus, the requirement to impose austerity on the population of Europe. I look at Britain and Italy because these two contexts that were very different politically, we have a, a liberal state, parliamentary democracy again in Britain, and we have a nascent fascist regime in Italy. 1922 is the year in which Mussolini comes to power. And what we see, interestingly, and this is a 
provocative message of the book is that once we put austerity at the center of our analysis, what you see is that in a liberal world and in a fascist world, the type of class warfare that was going on in order to protect the capital order was stunningly similar. Similar in the type of policies that were being enacted and similar in the type of economic theory that was justifying austerity. This is why for me, austerity is not just economic policy, it's not just the trinity of fiscal, monetary, and industrial policy, which shifts resources from the majority to the minority, but it's also about the type of economic theory that justifies this distribution of resources. I mean, I would like to, I'm going to ask you more about the similarities and differences between your two uh, cases. Um, but before that, I would like to take uh, and go a bit further into something that you mentioned, which was the uh, Bolshevik revolution, right? Um, how important was that in that, like, how important, yeah, how important was it in this process? Um, do you think that the, I mean, the idea that this other type of society was feasible and that a political project of that such was feasible because it literally happened and it seemed to work somewhat fine, uh, at least I guess for, for that period of time, was uh, was important? Like how, did, like how important compared with the word effort was this? I don't know. How do you think about this? Yes. Yes. Um, I was uh, criticized um, because uh, for, for some scholars that I agree, I didn't give enough weight to the importance of what was going on in Eastern Europe and namely Russia. So um, I didn't do that because, of course, I was more, more focused in looking at um, what was emerging in, in, in the hub of uh, advanced capitalism in that historical moment. Uh, but definitely what you see from all the archival sources I found is that it had a galvanizing effect on the working classes in Britain and Italy, what was going on in the, in the, in, in Russia, right? So, um, the Daily Herald, uh, one of the newspapers I explore, which was the, 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 a, a critical lefty newspaper in, in, in Britain, they had always, um, this uh, this um, interest that really um, fomented the revolutionary fervor uh, also in Britain. And this was also true in Italy, L'Ordine Nuovo of Gramsci Togliatti, that was the, the intellectual space of the factory council movement, was always reporting what was going on uh, in Russia, not just Russia, in Germany with Rosa Luxemburg and Hungary. So clearly um, ideas were circulating globally, not just the austerity ideas that were the reaction to this revolution, but also the revolutionary ideas. Now we need to consider, and this is very important, that the uh, beginning, the 1918-1919 phase of of Soviet Russia was very different from the face Soviet Russia took. For example, even in 1922 with the NEP and the, um, the, the, need, the, the need for Russia to confront also the um, opposition coming from the West and the fundamental verticalization and the imposition of kind of uh, an authoritarian state uh, on the population in Russia because the initial project was in fact based on the Soviets as the space of economic democracy, economic and political democracy, which is exactly 
the inspiration point of what was happening in the shop store movement in Britain and in the council movement in Italy, which was, let's stop pretending we have democracy in a capitalist representative system because you cannot have political democracy if this is not grounded in economic democracy. And by this, they meant, again, overcoming wage relations, overcoming the idea that we need to go to work we're forced to work in return for a wage and we have no control over the production process or over the output of production. And we just are need to um, accept a low wage as hu human beings, but the idea that actually we can become all collectively producers. So this is an intuition from Gramsci, who's very important in my first part of the book, is that you can imagine a society that really overcomes the divisions of classes by imagining the fact that we can all become collectively producers in the sense that we are all participating democratically in the production and distribution of resources. And it's only in this um, vindication of agency of the people that you can really think about a possibility of a new state that is not alienated from, from the people, it's not oppressive, like what happened then in the Soviet Union after, but it's actually the expression of the people, right? So this idea that it's a new state because it's the expression of the democratic productive processes. So in that historical moment, uh, 1918, 1919, this was the uh, inspiration that was coming from the East. It was about economic democracy, um, which of course did not last long for a variety of reasons that my book does not explore. But the point is that there were serious attempts to put into practice an alternative that was a virtuous alternative, which was not an oppressive, it was not, um, it's, I got uh, mentioned on the Financial Times in the best books of 2022. And um, Wolf, uh, who is, um, writes the, the, the piece, he said, there can, it's, it's very interesting because it's undeniable that there cannot not be nothing apart from capitalism that is not dictatorship and stagnation. This is how he concludes kind of the, uh, the presentation of the book, which, of course, this is kind of the end of history perspective that we have all kind of internalized as citizens of this world. But honestly speaking, uh, there are, uh, at, at the time, in the 1919-1920, clearly the idea was not that either you had capitalism or you had dictatorship. Um, but that actually capitalism itself was authoritarian and oppressive, and thus you needed to think about something different. I would like to hear now a bit more about how this played on the ground in your in the cases that you studied. So you focus on Britain and, and Italy. Who were the people and the names behind this uh, counteroffensive, I guess, that were behind the consolidation of, uh, of austerity as an important narrative that had to be embraced. Tell, tell us a bit about that, please. So interesting because the first international financial conferences uh, were, the, were really a moment, again, in Brussels, 1920, general 1922, were really a moment in which experts um, had a, a high moment for themselves in the sense that they were called to, for the first time, um, advise governments and um, what I do is that I look at uh, specifically who was operating in Britain. And I focus in Britain on the experts at the British Treasury, 
and also of the Bank of England. And then the experts, the equivalent experts in Italy that were economic professors uh, who were um, diffusing the novel paradigm called of pure economics. Now, pure economics is what they called their own framework, which was this framework that was basically the foundation of mainstream economics still today, emerging out of the so-called marginless revolution. Pure economics, because the idea was that uh, economics had finally reached a stage that was a mature, hard science that thus could really eliminate all the biases, all the class uh, implications, and could be neutral and above parts. Now, of course, the, the book plays exactly with this paradox, or more than a paradox, exactly with the importance of claiming this neutrality of the expert in a moment in which you want to have people accept these oppressive austerity policies. So to go back to your question, I look at Ralph Hawtrey in Britain has a huge role because he's the British Treasury expert who was actually coming up with the first macroeconomic theory that then was very influential on Keynes himself and on the Chicago School of Economics, so the monetarist tradition. And um, his influence on his uh, Treasury experts and how this kind of took concrete forms in the policies the Chancellor of the Exchequer was uh, implementing. In fact, Rav Hashi was the in-house economist. He wrote extensive memos that I dug up from the archives in uh, the Kew Garden archives, but also the the Churchill archives in Cambridge. Um, all these memoranda Hashi wrote to directly advise um, the chancellor on the best austerity policies, namely social, cuts in social expenditures, regressive taxation, so the fact that they started taxing the general population with the idea that they were consuming too much and cutting taxes on the virtuous saver investors, and finally, um, extensive privatization, wage repression. So all of these policies justified by a new economic theory. And this was the same in Italy. Um, Pantaleoni, Maffeo Pantaleoni is a big protagonist. He was the one of the founders of the marginalist framework, pure economics, to the levels of, you know, people like Jevons and Valra. He's very famous in his principles of pure economics. And he was participating in the Mussolini cabinet in order to see his models concretely applied, right? The possibility finally of these pure economists to reach their dream of modeling society according to um, their, their mathematical abstractions. I want to, <clears throat> I mean, you addressed some of this already and I know there's some, um, like a conceptual or philosophical approach to this, but I would like to, to hear how do you react to like from a more like practical approach to the fact that after like this ideas consolidate, you have uh, like a widespread adoption of the idea that the state should play a larger role in 
in economy, right? And then, so what I'm trying to say is that at least the conventional story is that Keynes arrives and he charms everyone. Well, I guess that, well, there are a bunch of like determinants behind, but by many means, most people would argue that you see the expansion of the welfare state and the expansion of um, the, the the size of, of the government, the intervention in the economy and, and so on and so forth. Um, how do you see that fitting into your uh, theory, right? Is that a pushback or is this part of the same long-term trend and these are disguised like um, actors of the system? How, how do you think about this? Thank you. Uh, it's a very important question. John Minor Keynes is himself um, a character in the story I tell in The Capital Order. He's a character not central, peripheral, but present. And it's interesting to note that in the early 1920s, Keynes, just as much as his austere colleagues, was terrified by the possibility of the collapse of the capital order. So um, in the early 1920s, he is the one who's actually advocating for even higher interest rate hikes than uh, his colleagues. And he's also advocating for another very important austerity pillar, which is um, central bank independence. This work delves into how it is actually through the active de-democratization process of decision-making, of economic decision-making, that austerity is successful. And someone like Keynes um, was very well aware uh, that in a moment in which there is there was a general um, enfranchisement of the population and people were demanding a greater say in economic decisions, it was more than ever crucial to maintain the insulation of the expert in its capacity to make decision on its own. And as Hotchie put it, the Bank of England should have never explained never apologize and never regretted, right? These are the words. Hot, uh, someone like Keynes was very much um, uh, agreeing with. So uh, K- the a Keynes that is never talked about is the Keynes of the early 1920s, who was an austerity supporter. And this, though, Keynes never really repudiates, because if you read what he writes still in the 1940s, 1942, he says, he's asked, and this is, again, it's, I, uh, this document is in the archives, and, um, and he was asked to reassess his positions, and he said, I would have done exactly the same, because he says, the boom, not the bust, is the moment for austerity, and especially more than the boom, it's the moment of social disorder, the moment in which people are wanting to overcome the pillars of capitalism is a moment in which austerity is more than ever necessary. And this is understanding that in order to avoid the thin crust, the, the um, breakdown of the thin crust of civilization, which he equates to capitalist civilization, because as the austerity people, he doesn't think there's anything but rationality in the terms of capitalist rationality and civilization in the terms of capitalist civilization. He's very clear that austerity is necessary in order to stabilize class relations. 
And this is something that he understands very, he's, uh, Keynes is very aware of where he stands in the class warfare. In fact, he says it, right? Uh, in this moment, I stand with the educated bourgeoisie. Uh, and he, again, he's very explicit. And so are the others. And that's why I, I find very interesting to look at these uh, characters of the 1920s that they're much more explicit than today, um, than someone like Larry Summers today, for example. Even if also today the explicit need to discipline um, consumers and producers is quite clear, honestly. But anyway, this said, uh, what about the larger intervention of the state that we see in the 1930s, for example? Right, that was kind of your question. Uh, how do what how do we make sense of this in this? general thesis of the book, which is that capitalism is really austerity capitalism. So I would say that the possibility of large-scale state intervention that happened mostly to recover from the Great Slump after 1929, and parenthesis, austerity was used as a main formula to cure even the downturn of the 1930s until well into the 1930s, right? Uh, but anyway, I think that realized Keynesianism uh, was possible because it stood in the ashes of the successes of austerity. Let me try to explain. I think that the class stabilization that austerity allowed for in the 1920s was what enabled the possibility of having state interventionism in the 1930s without this implying the general questioning of the capital order. So the stabilization of the capital order in the 1920s set the basis for the possibility of a Keynesian state interventionism, which was not going to fundamentally shake the foundation of capitalist growth. Um, the workers had been defeated. Um, the Keynesianism, Fordism of post-Second World War was a, a, a situation in which the working classes had ultimately accepted the capitalist social contract. So, they, of course, they wanted higher wages, but they were not going to question what was instead questioned after the First World War, which were wage relations themselves. So I think this is important is that uh, even Keynesianism, this is what I'm working on for my new book project uh, that is still very much in the making, is to look, about, uh, to look at how much Keynesianism actually presupposes austerity capitalism, both chronologically and structurally. Uh, because in the 19, early 1920s, last thing I want to say is that chapter two of my book uh, of the capital order reconstructs the worldview of the so-called reconstructionists, sorry, the uh, play with words, reconstructionists, which were in fact trying to pacify the general social upheaval after the First World War with proto-Keynesian measures. And what is obvious is that uh, this reconstructionist aim was achieving non-reconstructionist results in the sense that people were demanding more. Um, this giving social resources to the population was actually entailing greater demands from this population to break away from the system in general, right? So the impossibility of social appeasement through social measures after the First World War is something that, of course, is very different in the state interventionism afterwards. 
I would like to take some of what you mentioned, and, and I know that you have um, the expectation that um, your thesis can enlighten some of our um, present conditions. So I would like to take like a bit this conversation to to the present, and and I would like to ask you how do you see the future regarding this same issue? I'd like my impression would have been till a few months ago that mainstream economics had become quite sympathetic towards something that probably is not exactly what you understand as austerity, but towards something against like the dominant like austerity view of the last few decades, right? So I had in the podcast a few months ago, uh, Barry Eichengreen, he wrote a book called In Defense of Public Debt, for instance, right? And I think you could argue that he's part of the um, establishment, if you want, of the profession, right? It's at UC Berkeley and, and many people, and no one thought like, okay, this is very crazy. I know again that you don't see austerity as a purely macro policy, I guess, or like fiscal mon- monetary policy. Um, but like that sense, like that, that would have been like my uh, reading of the situation back then. Things have changed recently, right? So, but anyways, I would like to hear how you think about this are you somewhat optimistic do you think that things are changing they're not what do you think about this yes uh, i think this is very interesting uh because ultimately i think that these recent months have really um uncovered um the facade of of supposed keynesianism as an alternative to austerity that we were convinced had happened, let's say, um, with even the COVID pandemic. What we see today is that even authors, even in the book of, of Barry Aikengreen, it is very clear that there's, very, there's clear limits to social expenditures, especially, and especially when you uh, reach the uh, structural limit of capitalism, which is the inflationary risks. So what we see today, right? So um, Keynesians of all sorts, new Keynesians, post-Keynesians, even someone like uh, Stephanie Kelton, I mean, ultimately realize that inflation is a true risk for the system. Monetary instability, if there's no monetary stability, capitalism doesn't function. But as Keynes himself saw in the 1920s, inflation is also a deeply political problem, right? So inflation is clearly what uh, allows us to see that there's nothing just economic. It's always also political in the sense that uh, inflationism um, threatens the breakdown of the consensus of the market capitalist economy as the most efficient way to organize our society. It enhances social unrest. It enhances labor mobilization, all the strikes we're seeing, right? In the United States, uh, there are plenty of strikes that the mainstream media doesn't discuss, but we're in a moment in which if you look at the Cornell Labor uh, Actions Tracker, you see real time these strikes going on. There's more than 800 uh, strikes taking places all over the country. Britain is huge the amount of labor mobilization going on. Why? Well, because inflation triggers discontent and triggers um, a possibility of thinking about potentially a way of organizing society that is different. Now, um, the mainstream, and the mainstream now is ultimately New Keynesian, right? The, the mainstream New Keynesian view uh, uh, 
clearly does not allow for breaching away from the capital order. So as soon as there are um, there are threats to the fundamental basis of our capitalist economic growth, they also revert to austerity. And quite explicitly, right? Uh, again, someone like Larry Summers, who you could say like kind of embodies this mainstream, who clearly is not uh, opposed to state intervention as such, right? We know that all of these economists were very much favorable to uh, especially, again, especially business stimulus during moments of recession, especially. So this, again, we see that this is not counter to the logic of austerity, because as I explain in the book, austerity is about where you want to use your state resources. If you decide that the the best way to boost and protect economic growth under capitalism, maybe we lost a moment. Yes, but go go ahead, go ahead. We we can. So uh, what I was saying is that. Even state interventionism is not counter in itself to the austerity logic, because if you look at what happened to stimulate the economy, for example, with the COVID pandemic, it was all about giving the priority to the saver investing elite in all of the money that was wielded towards the supposed productive sectors of the economy, right? Um, So... uh, to the people, very little was given in this form of paycheck. So state interventionism itself is not counter necessarily to the austerity logic. The point, again, is to look at where the state spends. And if the state is spending on the saving industri- uh, investing elite, that is exactly the logic of austerity. And you can see clearly that when limits are being breached in the sense that maybe people did get more consumption power because of these uh, stimulus checks. And this consumption power has, in fact, somehow um, um, threatened monetary stability. Or in general, these uh, stimulus checks have, most importantly, allowed people to realize that there could be an alternative to just going to work for a wage. Uh, there's a huge anti-work movement in the United States right now. People just not going to work anymore, right? The great resignation is real, and it's what actually is pushing up labor costs because workers now have higher bargaining power because the labor market is so, so tight. And the labor market is tight because millions of Americans, just in August, 4.3 million Americans, stop going to work. So this, I think, is very important, is that when all of this disorder of the social relation of production happen, then the Keynesian mainstream has no doubt that the solution to this crisis is very tough austerity, first of all, in the form of interest rate hikes. And they say it explicitly, interest rate hikes will cool down the economy, will increase the unemployment rate. Someone like Ray Summers is saying we need a 7% unemployment rate in order for our economy to run smoothly. So once you have this understanding of what austerity is, and again, the point of this book is to give a different reading of austerity, exactly to have us kind of question these usual dichotomies of who is austere and who isn't, and just understanding Keynesianism as 
in principle not austere. I would argue that Keynesianism in many forms is austere um, if we understand austerity through a class lens. Let me ask you one final question, which, um, I mean, I expect it to be unfair because your book is very concrete. I think you want to deliver one specific uh, message and you do it like quite effectively, but, um, but it's, it's fundamentally a story, a Eurocenter story, right? It's a, or like a West like type of narrative, right? And, and I'm curious about how do you think about what happens in the rest of the world, right? How, like now I'm talking from, from Colombia, I'm visiting my parents, I just told you, what are the roles of these places? And are we just the periphery? And here, like, I'm thinking of just about the developing world, but I'm thinking about places like China nowadays, or that I guess like you could put it also as a developing country, but... What what are these places? What what's the place of these countries in in your story? And maybe you you're gonna tell me, well, this is the periphery. The ideas emerge in the core of of the capitalist system, and then they spread across the rest of the world. But if that's the case, I would like to hear what are the mechanisms through which that happens. Is there any point where you see that there's a Contrabalance movement that could emerge from these other places as they have become wealthier in, in, in recent decades. What's your read on, on these issues? Yes, thank you. So uh, just to um, be clear, the reason why I focused on Italy and Britain, uh, even in my ca historical case study, was because it was there that legal equality had been achieved, right? And so it was... Um, it, it was a moment in which, in fact, you really see austerity as this project to uh, avoid economic democracy, to avoid uh, democratic participation in a moment in which at least legal, legally, formally speaking, democratic participation had been reached. This is why I don't look at, for example, what was going on in the colonies, not because there was no austerity, but because in a way there was still a even deeper political subjugation that um, that um, was not really allowing for uh, people to um, to use their political enfranchisement for uh, alternative economic systems, uh, demands for alternative economic systems. So that's why I'm looking at the West. I'm looking at the West because I want to look at internal class warfare. And so I think... Uh, what I tried to do in the last chapter of the book is to try to show how the themes that emerge from this uh, scrutiny of the class dynamics within the Western Europe, um, of course, uh, ultimately apply. And I don't want to say that we should, uh, of course, I very well know the critique also of, you know, the emergence of neoliberalism as something that happened in the West and then was transported in the rest of the world, right? That uh, the kind of David Harvey reading, which has been amply criticized, rightfully so, regarding the birth of neoliberalism. So the same kind of could be said of my book, but the point here is not to say the practices that were born here and then transposed, but it's more to say, let's look at these dynamics and mechanisms that show up constantly in the history of capitalism globally and 
how uh, what are how do they play out? And so that's why the last chapter also, for example, shows clear parallelism between the Mussolini dictatorship and the support of liberals uh, of Mussolini with what was happening in Pinochet in the 1970s, with the case of Pinochet uh, in the 1970s, and also what happened with Boris Yeltsin in the 1990s in, in after the fall of the Soviet Union. So dynamics that are not uh, just in the West, they're everywhere. And um, they play out differently, of course, according to the different contexts. But certainly the um, authoritarian thrust of economic expertise used to justify austerity is something that you see in all countries all over the world. So that's why for me it's important to um, kind of stress the relevance of class analysis also because um, it plays out constantly. And of course then austerity is pressured from, I mean, hegemonic countries are pressuring other countries to impose austerity even further. So the role of the IMF, for example, now in Sri Lanka, or just even the role that the the European Troika plays in Italy or Greece. So, you know, periphery at all levels, the periphery of Europe and the periphery, the global periphery and the global south. Clearly, there is national pressures from the part of the uh, most uh, of the north to impose austerity. So it's fair to look at the nation, you national units but i also think that the part of the book is to say if we have as our unit of analysis nation states and countries we lose sight as what is more important which is the class struggle that happened at all levels both domestically and internationally right so this i think is something for example that dependency theory saw very well in discussing the situation in latin america um, after the second world war is that you need to keep class analysis in mind even when you're looking at relations between countries. This is great. Um, this is this is quite fascinating. I think this was a lovely conversation. I learned a lot reading your book. You wrote a quite thought-provoking book, and uh, I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for, for your time. Thanks a lot, Clara. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope uh, the listeners will be curious enough to read the direct sources of the time in the book. Okay. Bye-bye.